My name's Andrew. If you don't know me, I'm the new associate pastor here at Harvest, uh, and I've been here since the beginning of September. It has been a delight working with Matt, with Greg, with Joni and Alyssa, a, a really solid, wonderful team. Although they did put my stapler in jello on the first day. So I reported that to HR, so they have some interviews coming. But as confirming as my transition into this pastoral work has been, uh, the journey to saying yes to God, to full-time ministry, required overcoming a mountain of fears for me. On the trail that God took me down, I had laid countless boulders, barriers on the path, and each one an excuse, a reason, or justification why I could safely say no to God. But as God took my hand and we walked down that track together, he one by one moved each one of those boulders out of the way and proved to me time and time again that he would take care of all my needs. He daily reminded me that he'd take care of the birds of the air, of the lilies of the field. He told me, Andrew, seek first the kingdom of God. He reminded me I'm with you always. But I had boulders, all shapes and sizes, each one a doubt, concern. I had decided God wouldn't resolve. There was a big one right off the bat called financial security. And then next to it, a little medium-sized one, confident retirement. <laughs> Some had longer names like wrong temperament and personality for ministry. That one was paired up with identity issues. Yeah, this was not a fun path to walk down at all. And there were so many more boulders, fears inside my head and inside my heart. I worried what would family and friends think if they found out I was a full-time minister. I worried if people thought I acted enough like a pastor. Was I above reproach enough? And it sure felt like Satan took a few swings as well. He, he seemed to enjoy bringing up mistakes of old into my memory and casting shameful doubt over things I thought I had done well for Jesus. But I knew God was asking me to say yes to him. But the hardships in that process seemed too many and too vast. And I know my experience is not unique. We are all in the midst of God asking us to say yes to him, and we all have boulders blocking our way. Some of those boulders you have placed there, some the world has placed there. And then the enemy comes along and makes them appear twice as big as they really are. So what does God do when there are so many barriers in the way? When God asks you to follow him, to step out in faith with him, yet the way is blocked. How does he respond? How do you respond? Now, just as we're on journeys with Jesus, so were Paul and Barnabas, who we've been following for the last few weeks. These two guys didn't have figurative stones blocking their path. They had literal stones being hucked at their head time and time again as people tried to stone them. So let's look at Acts chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, please open there with me. That is where we'll be at this morning. And we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 14, just the first seven verses. And chapter 14 kind of lands right in the middle of Paul's first missionary journey. So before we jump into this text, I want to get reacquainted real quick to where we've been. And just so you know about your new associate pastor, I am a visual learner. So for me, maps, pictures, they're like mental landmarks for me to help remember Bible stories and truth. So I've got a map up here showing Paul and Barnabas' journey with John Mark so far. 
So his journey begins at Antioch. We know that. That is where the Holy Spirit commissions Paul and Barnabas in the church. If you remember where Christians are first called, Christians, Jesus' followers are called Christians there at Antioch. They are told, hey, by the Holy Spirit, I've got a job for you to do. So they pack up, they head out, they head down to the coast, they jump on a ship, and they first sail to the island of Cyprus. Once they land there, they travel across the island, preaching as they go, and they land in Paphos. That journey is about 90 miles, so here to the Dalles that they've been working along. And it's there that, if you remember, they go toe-to-toe with a guy named Bar-Jesus, false prophet. That's, remember, where Paul says he calls him the son of the devil when he's trying to evangelize to the Roman governor, Sergius Paulus. But after Paphos, they jump on another ship, they head up to the mainland, they land there, and they make their way to Pisidian Antioch. That's spot number two I've written up there. That's where we were at last week with Greg teaching us. And Paul preaches an amazing sermon there. Many believe, but in classic fashion, the ruling Jews took offense, kick Paul and Barnabas out of the city. So then they head off to Iconium, where I have listed number three. And that's where we're at in chapter 14. So let's read verse one. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. So in normal fashion, a normal theme, Paul rolls into a new city. He heads for the synagogue. And although we don't really know exactly what Paul said, we know it was effective to bring many to Christ. So it was probably something similar to what we know he just said in Pisidian Antioch. But par for the course, verse 2 the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. What a surprise. Opposition rears its head. Just like Bar-Jesus was trying to poison the mind of Sergius Paulus on Cyprus, these Jews are trying to poison the minds of the Gentiles. So verse 3 we read, Therefore they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who is testifying to the word of his grace granting that signs and wonders be performed by their hands. Now, we don't know how long Paul and Barnabas stuck around, but they relied on the Lord to speak boldly. And God then proved his word through signs and wonders. And in verse 4, we read, But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, while others with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to treat them abusively and to stone them, they became aware of it. They fled to the cities of Lystra, Derby, and the surrounding area, and there they continued to preach the gospel. It's kind of a short and sweet story, isn't it? Seven verses. Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel. Some believe opposition rears its head. They head out. The word of grace is spread. Nothing really new here, right? Let's, let's move on to the next story. And don't we often read scripture that way? We, we read it like we're eating a bag of popcorn at the movies, mindless and distracted. We know how the popcorn is going to taste, and the movie is far better than savoring each buttery popped kernel. We arrive at the bottom of the bag in astonishment and move on to our milk duds. (laughs) We can read these seven verses the same way. We already know what happens when Paul starts preaching in the synagogues. This situation has been repeated twice already. It happened on Cyprus, happened in Antioch, and now Iconium. It's practically what happened for the entire ministry of Jesus as he was on the earth, right? The pattern keeps repeating itself. But it's in this repetition, though, that Luke is trying to make a point. We know that when biblical authors repeat themselves, they're stressing something. 
And I think the repetition here is for us to see some themes throughout the entirety of this first missionary journey, but then to also notice some nuances within the repetition. So let's first look at some of the nuances, and then we'll move on to themes. Now, Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey is marked by Luke with four major stops. And if we put the map up, back up, we see those four major stops. Paphos on the island, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. So we're covering that third stop here at Iconium. Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra next. And at each one of these stops, though, they face slightly different issues with their attempts to proclaim the gospel. Luke tells us here in Iconium, the issue is, verse 2, the Jews were poisoning the minds of the Gentiles. Poisoning the minds. Now, one author described this poisoning this way. It implies not only an ill disposition aroused towards the brethren, but injury also done to the minds in which the feeling was stirred up. So the Jews aren't just making derogatory remarks under the breath or rolling their eyes when Paul and Barnabas talk. They aren't just hurling insults or name-calling from the crowd either. They're engaging in a campaign of lies to twist the words and force the crowds into truly being disgusted by their very presence. And for the Gentiles that accept the Jews' poisoning agenda, it wreaks havoc on them as they're consumed with closed-minded hate and filled with a blinding pride. And this poisoning of minds the Jews were doing, it's not foreign to us. We see the same tactics every day in the same way certain groups push political agendas. And really the game and content hasn't changed much either. We could change Iconium for Camus. We could change Paul and Barnabas with Harvest Church. They were preaching the good news of Jesus and the ruling powers go on a hell-bent offensive to sway the populace against the most life-saving hope-granting, healing message ever to be told. It sounds pretty close to home, doesn't it? Now, verse 3, if we look at the text, it describes the message of Paul and Barnabas as bringing the word of his grace and be a synonym of the gospel, the good news, the word of his grace. And he uses that term in contrast to whatever the ruling Jews were saying, which is described as poison. So we have poison, and we have the word of his grace. The word of God has no issue announcing it is exclusively the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father by any means other than the word of his grace. Because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in him was life. And the life was a light of men, a light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. Instead, the darkness went on the offensive and from the beginning has sought to poison the minds, words, and hearts of any message regarding the word of his grace. Now, I would imagine for some of you, the imagery of poison is quite palpable. If you're in school or have kids or grandkids in school, you can almost taste the poison in the air. And I'm confident some workplaces feel poisonous. When we turn on the TV, when we listen to the radio, jump on Instagram or TikTok, Facebook, the poison is there in varying degrees of toxicity. And when consumed, this poison works to cancel your stance on the Word of God. 
It works to deconstruct your faith into outdated and bigoted views of sexuality, marriage, and creation order. And as much as I would love to launch into speaking truth in love on the hot topics of our age, this text has other truths for us to focus on. So I will move on. Verse 3, we are told in response to this poisonous opposition, Paul and Barnabas, they stayed put. They spoke boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who in turn granted signs and wonders to be done. So we have an example here from Paul and Barnabas as to how we should respond to this poison. We speak out boldly, we stand up, we rely on the Lord, and we trust that God will work wonders when and how he desires. Let's move on to some of the truths, though, now that arise from the themes that are going on here. As I stated in my introduction, it's Luke's repetition that he is trying to make a point. So I want to look at the repetition of opposition at these four main stops on the first missionary journey. First stop, Paphos, Cyprus, the island. Paul and Barnabas go toe-to-toe with the false prophet Bar-Jesus. He is controlling the mind of Sergius Paulus, the proconsul. Second stop, Pisidian Antioch. We have jealous Jews who contradict and lie about Paul and Barnabas. Iconium, we have unbelieving Jews who poison the minds of the Gentiles and eventually plot to stone Paul. And then finally, Lystra. This is going to be covered next week, so spoiler alert. When Paul and Barnabas go there, the opposition comes in a new form. It's not physical threats of violence or jealous Jews. It's an audience who watches Paul heal a man that is lame, and then they idolize him for it. They call him Zeus and Barnabas Hermes. They want to worship them. So four stops, four differing yet somewhat predictable flavors of opposition. Some time ago, I was seeing a counselor, and he he was a godly Christian man, and when we met, we often talked about our shared faith. But as I shared my struggles with him over the weeks, he at one point told me, he said, Andrew, I meet with a lot of people and have done it for several years. And what is so interesting, but actually haunting, are the similarities in people's hurts, fears, and struggles. He told me they all tend to originate from attacks on a person's identity and value. It's almost if the attacks have a distinct style, a theme, or, or, or pattern, like they came from the same enemy. He told me, said, Andrew, I get to see the damage of the evil one. Like a surgeon in a military hospital will know the tools and tactics of the enemy as injured, injured soldiers come back from the line, I get to see the tactics of Satan as he distorts the image of God and twists God's truth. Now, if we go back to the beginning, if we go back to the garden, what do we find? We see the father of all lies, poisoning the mind of Eve, lying about what God has said, blaspheming. What do we see on the island of Cyprus? Bar Jesus, that son of the devil, poisoning the mind of the Roman governor. And in Iconium, the unbelieved Jews, poisoning the mind of the Gentiles. If we go back to Jesus, when he walked the earth, scripture says, again, the devil took him, this is Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil said to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. It's an appeal to the temptation of power and pride. So what do we see at Lystra? The people try to worship Paul and Barnabas. 
and pressing them to the same pride and conceit. Dr. Tom Constable, a Dallas Theological Seminary professor and pastor, he said this, if Satan cannot derail Christian witness with persecution, he will try praise. Too much persecution has destroyed many preachers and too much praise has ruined many others. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. Jesus tells us he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So church, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Now, despite this opposition, the varying attempts to thwart his word of grace going forth, what do we likewise see on the first missionary journey at these four stops? On Cyprus, despite Bargesus' attempts, the proconsul believed, Sergius Paulus believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. At Pisidian Antioch, when the Gentiles heard, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as, as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. At Iconium, third stop, a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. At Lystra, another spoiler alert, Paul and Barnabas, they are going to be stoned there. But nonetheless, they preached the gospel to that city, and many were made disciples. So at these four stops, we see that despite the opposition of the enemy, God's word will go forth. God's word is not stopped. In fact, in the ultimate proof of God's power over all things and his infinite ability to redeem, God uses Satan's attempts to stop the gospel to actually further spread it. Amen? Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. Now, at the conclusion of this first missionary journey, I'm going to fast forward because there's a point being made by Luke. We read this in verse 21 of chapter 14. This is concluding this missionary journey. He says, After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch. He's making his way back through where he's visited. Verse 22, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This phrase, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's somewhat the thesis statement of the first missionary journey. It's one of the points Luke is trying to make through the telling of this whole story. Now, the phrase kingdom of God, it doesn't explicitly mean heaven, nor is it saying to be saved, you must endure hardships, or the manner in which you enter heaven is through hardship. It's not saying those things. What it is saying, though, is a life of following Jesus and doing his will includes all sorts of hardships. Boulders in our path that originate in our own heart Boulders that have placed there by the world, by the powers of darkness. 
So what are the boulders in your path of following Jesus? Or maybe before we ask that, that question, we need to ask, what is the path God wants to walk with you down? Now, we are reading in Acts the story of the path God walked with Paul and Barnabas, but what is yours? Where is God wanting to take you? In what way is he asking you to say yes to him, to trust in him where he is leading you? Is he leading you to reconcile a relationship with someone you've hurt or been hurt by? Is he asking you to trust him with a difficult decision? Is he asking you to take a leap of faith, jump out into what seems like thin air? Is he saying, take a risk, go all in on me? Is he convicting in your heart to be open to sharing the gospel to a family member, a neighbor, or a stranger? Or maybe it's just a baby step of simple obedience in a mundane area of your life. Or maybe what is that thing that you've suppressed inside your heart? Something that God has convicted in you, but you can't deal with it. So you've stuffed it down, hidden it in the recesses of your mind. What is that thing you know is from God, but there are just too many barriers, too many boulders on the path to even look at it. If you feel some anxiety or some fear inside of you, let me remind you what God reminded me when I looked at the possibility of changing careers. God took my hand and gently, lovingly started, me, started to lead me forward. He reminded me, Lord, you are compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and faithfulness. He reminded me, Romans 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his promise and purpose. Matthew 11, as Christy spoke this morning, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus reminded me from the Psalms, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Second Samuel tells us, as for God, his way is perfect. The word's law and word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. Philippians tells us that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians tells us he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, he reminded me from 1 John, see what love the Father lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that we are. Our good Father wants to take you by the hand and lead you down a good path. He wants you to say yes to him, to be willing to follow him, where he leads. I think sometimes when God asks us to say yes to him, it can feel like we're going in for surgery. When I changed jobs into this one, it sure felt like that for me. And if you've ever had surgery or gone under, it's kind of scary, right? You jump into a well-laundered gown, fanny hanging out, it's cold and quite breezy. And then they stick an IV in your arm, they start pumping you full of saline solution, and then you wait. They leave you in a little staging area for what seems like an eternity 
as you contemplate what feels like certain and horrible death. And then comes the, long, the worst and longest part, the dreaded roll down the hallway to the operating room, alone, just the squeaky bed wheel hiding your heavy breathing, the fluorescent bulbs beating down on you. Then the double doors swing open, and there's a team of surgeons and nurses covered from head to toe, sterilized with their hands up in the air like this. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. You just know in a moment you're going to be asleep, and then the next experience you have will be horrible pain as you wake up in post-op. It's scary. It's anxiety-ridden. I sure hope that in whatever way God is asking you to step out and trust, it doesn't feel like that. But if it does, remember the truths of those verses I just read. You're not alone. God has good things for you. They may be hard, but they will be good. You can completely trust in him. He's not going to abandon you. You're his child. Now, in the context of our story today, God told Paul and Barnabas to go and share the word of his grace, a mission given truly not to just Paul and Barnabas, but to all believers. We know of the Great Commission, where Jesus, departing into heaven, tells his followers, go therefore, make disciples. This charge is built into the mission statement of our church. I want to spend some time talking about this, the charge that Jesus has truly made a mission for us all. Because God calls us to evangelize to the lost. Now, I, I know just saying the word evangelize for some brings up bad memories and maybe a guilt-filled reminder that I'm not sharing the gospel enough. I know when I hear the word evangelize, I just think of teachings I've heard in the past where the preacher is like, yeah, I was studying the Great Commission, and I went to the grocery store, and I felt, mm, I need to share the gospel with the employee ringing up my groceries. And then the application of, are you willing to tell the good news to someone in the checkout line? Well, you better be. And then the guilt to follow, because I'm really not super excited about that form of evangelism. Now, just as what happened in Iconium in our text today, where the opposition poisons the truth of God's message, so does the enemy want to muddy the waters around evangelism. He wants to cast doubt wherever he can and make us come to assumptions or conclusions that stop us from sharing the gospel. Excuses like, God, I'm sorry, I, I, it's just too awkward to talk about Jesus with people. You know, God, my neighbors or my friends, they're going to judge me for sure. I don't know enough theology. I don't have the right answers. I don't even know where I would start. I don't necessarily want people to know I'm a Christian or people to know me that well. God, God you don't understand. I could lose my job. I could lose my standing. I could lose opportunities. Jesus, I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm too middle-aged. Jesus, no offense, but nobody wants to hear about you around here. The list could go on and on, right? And I think so many of these excuses or fears also stem from presumptions of what evangelism looks like. For me, it is the presumption that evangelism is talking to strangers in a grocery line. We presume to know what God is going to ask us to do or what it will look like to share the good news. Or maybe it's a presumption combined with a hurt or wound, such as, God, I did share the gospel, but it ended up not going well for me. It cost me a relationship. I lost a friendship. Or 
the person I want to share the gospel with, they've been really hurt by the church. I believe this is the same poisoning that we saw in the Garden of Eden and at Pisidian Antioch and Iconium. It is the intentional distorting of all truth and especially anything having to do with the good news going forth. So I want to us as a church redeem about how we view serving the Lord, how we see sharing the good news. The word evangelism shouldn't make us cringe or sweat. And I want to start this conversation with remembering who is commissioning us for this work. It is the one who knows you better than yourself because he made you. He knows your wirings. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows the gifts he has given you and hasn't given you. He knows how much theology you know and don't know. He knows how many verses you don't have memorized. He knows your fears. He knows you're an introvert or shy or just really socially awkward. And he knows you have a horrible filter. And when you get nervous, your brain doesn't work right. He knows you're starting to forget things. He knows the history between you and that coworker. He knows that your in-laws drive you nuts. Nothing really escapes God's notice for some reason. That's why he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, do not be afraid. I have conquered the world. He says, I have prepared good works beforehand for you to walk into. I've already got them ready. He says, I'm going to walk with you. I'm not going to leave your side. In fact, how about I have the Holy Spirit reside inside of you? He says, I will give you the right words at the right time. You don't have to have it all figured out. He says, I intentionally use the least of these to accomplish my good will. He says, in your weakness, my strength is shown. You feeling ill-equipped but willing to be used is exactly what he wants. So what does evangelism look like for you? First, we know from the scripture that God has already lined up good works for us to step into. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So let us not presume to know what these good works will be and say to God, wish I could, but I can't. Well, can, but won't, should, but shorn. The good works God has for us may be as small as a smile across the room, an intentional handshake. It might be a pat on the back or a hug. Maybe saying hello to a neighbor and just talking about the weather. It could be making a meal for someone and dropping it off at their door. No human interaction. Maybe it's a text message saying, hey, I was thinking of you. How can I pray for you? It's an email with an encouraging word. Go on the extra mile at work. Be an extra patient with that student or that child. Our God loves to use the small, ordinary, seemingly mundane things to draw others to himself, just as much as the big things. And maybe for, for one of you, it is a big thing. For me, it was a career change. Maybe it's being super bold in a conversation with a family member, directly telling them why you trust in the Lord Jesus. Under the umbrella of the Great Commission lives all the things that fulfill the greatest commandment, love God and love others. So let us be bold in our evangelism, not allowing presumptions on what it will be or look like dissuade us from being on the lookout for those good works God has prepared beforehand for us. And one final thought on this. 
The first step forward, being able to say yes to God, may be saying no to something else. God does not want you to be overextended, burnt out, feeling guilty that you need to add another thing to your plate. And if you don't add more to your plate, then you're really not pleasing God. That is not how our good father operates. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11. This will be the third time we've repeated this morning. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So maybe for you, the first yes to God is a recalibration of all the things you are doing. It's actually saying no. So I began this message by asking, what does God do when there are so many barriers in the way? When God asks you to follow him, to step out in faith, yet the way is blocked, how does he respond? How do you respond? Well, first and foremost, from the story of Iconium and from the greater story of the first missionary journey, we see that God plows through barriers like a freight train through a fly. And not only that, but in the ultimate spiritual judo move of eternity, he uses Satan's attempts to distort and stop the truth to instead have it grow and flourish and reach further audiences. And when God impresses on you to follow him down a path marked with boulders, what does he do? Our loving father wants to take your hand and show you his awesome power of healing and provision. And finally, how do you respond? Do you dig your heels in or do you step out in trust? Are you ready and willing to say yes to God, to experience to a deeper level the awesomeness of his goodness and love, whether it be something big or small or anywhere in between? I want to conclude our time with a parable that Jesus told the disciples not long before he was arrested. It's the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. You may recall, it's the parable of a man who's about to go on a long journey. And so he entrusts his possessions to his workers while he is gone. With one man, he gives five talents to another two and another one. And the first man uses the five talents to make five more. The second man uses his two to make two more. But the first man uses his single talent, and he buries it. And when the owner returns, he goes and digs it up. And when he offers his excuse for not multiplying the talent, he says, I was afraid. In this parable, this, this man said no to God because he was afraid. Harvest Church, I do not know what the Holy Spirit is impressing on your heart right now, but please say yes to God. Do not be afraid. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. And our Father loves you. Let his love drive out fear as you say yes to him, and he takes your hand, and you watch him remove all the boulders on the path he wants to walk with you on. Pray with me. Father, it's good to say yes to you. It's good to step out in trust. I'm reminded of Abraham when you told him, I have a place that I want to take you to. Follow me. And in Hebrews, we read that it was because of his faith, 
because of his trust in you, that it was credit to him as righteousness. I pray that, Father, as we as a church would do likewise, in the little things as much as the big things, that we would step out in trust and faith following you, and it would be credit to us as righteousness as we glorify your name. We love you, Jesus. Amen.